Read with me now from the book that we love from Genesis chapter 3. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me for the fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. Pray with me. Lord, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What we just read together is a small piece of a much larger story, one that I think a lot of us have heard before. I don't honestly remember the first time ever hearing this story. You know, it's uh, along with like Noah's Ark and the lost sheep, you know. They just have always been there. But I think this one has a few more questions and emotions wrapped up in it for me. You know, I get a little bit angry when I think about Adam and Eve, you know, messing it all up for the rest of us. And, you know, I... When I think about them trying to uh, hide from God in the garden behind some trees, and I'm like, really? You think that's going to work? You know, a couple of trees are going to hide you from the creator of the universe. Yeah, good job. I also have some confusion, you know, when I think about, like, what made that tree special? Why weren't we allowed to eat from that one? Why does their sin affect us? Why does the snake talk? Why does the snake have legs? Isn't that just a lizard? You know, like, those are the kind of things that are bouncing around in my brain. And those are pretty fun questions, and I think they're worthwhile questions to wonder about and wander around in. But I'm hoping that for today, we can let this story just be a story. And I know for some people that might make you a little bit nervous to call a Bible story just a story. Um, But for me, um, I don't think it takes away from, I don't think it belittles it or takes away from the ultimate truth that we find in it. But I think calling it a story actually allows us to see even more truth. It allows us to see the important things more clearly. Letting this be a story keeps us from being caught in the theological weeds of all the questions and wonderings of how this story fits inside the grander one of God's gift to us. It keeps us from interrogating everything and allows us to just hear what's at the core of the story. One of my profs calls the stories of the Bible uh, theology in motion. In stories, we encounter truth and theology and see what happens when someone encounters God in a really life-altering way. We can see theology embedded in the reality of life. It's kind of like how you can read in a textbook that the sun's rays give off heat and light. 
but that means a lot different of a thing when you stand outside and feel the sun beating down on you or feel the sunburn after. You know, that is a different sort of truth and understanding of the very real thing that you read from the story or from the textbook. So I'm hoping that today we can just let this be a story and see what's at the core of this story for us. The thing is, what I think is at the core of this story is the reason that we try to avoid it with all these questions, because what's at the core of this story for me and what I read is shame. And shame is emotion we don't like to talk about, and it's something we like to feel even less. Even with our friend and the saint, Brene Brown, talking about vulnerability and shame and kind of going into that in our culture and our mindset right now, we still shrink back. I can see y'all getting a little nervous in your seats thinking about shame. It's something we don't like. Shame is hard for us, and this passage is brimming with it. You know, um, it's the one that people have been pointing back to for centuries saying, oh, this is, this is the reason that we're broken. This is why we can't encounter God in the same way. This is why I hurt people. Pretty shameful for us. It haunts us in our daily lives in a way that a lot of other passages don't. And we feel and see our shame reflected in the people of the story. Adam and Eve are full of it. We can see it in their every step. God comes down to walk in the garden and they hide away from him. They try their best to hide their nakedness. They try to hide from their responsibility and shove blame onto other people. They are deep in hiding, trying to keep everything a secret. And I think you can see this in humans, in us as well. When a kid breaks a, a glass or a lamp or something, a lot of times the fear and shame is their go-to. They hide the lamp or throw away the pieces of broken glass and hope no one else notices or they run up into their room and hope someone else comes upon it and blames the sibling instead. We know how to hide from shame or, and from others when we do something wrong. We live it. But what does God do in the midst of shame and fear in this story? God asks questions. And here's where I see the shame that we hold about this text coming through a little bit more clearly. You see, when I write emails, I have to go back and take out exclamation points and add in periods because I end every sentence in an exclamation point because I'm trying to seem friendly and natural and casual and I don't want anyone to think I'm mad at them or intense and so I have to take out the exclamation points and make them periods because I'm not worried about that. You know, I've had a boss, you know, who would send me an email and I would read the tone in. I would be like, oh my gosh, I have majorly messed up. I have ruined everything. And then I would see them in person and it was like the most casual thing ever. They're like, oh yeah, I just wanted to let you know. I was like, I've been so worried about this this whole time because of the periods. The periods made it more intense to me. And so I put in friendly exclamation points to try to ease that for everyone else around me because I don't want them to think I'm mad at them. Um, but unfortunately, there are no exclamation points in this. So we have to add our own tone. We have to read our own tone in, just like we have to do for emails and texts. So that's where our shame comes in, because we have this understanding and we see the shame in this passage so much more clearly than we do anything else. Our God's questions absorb that tone. We assume God is angry and intense and interrogating in these questions. 
the questions snap. Where are you? I know you've done wrong. Who told you? I know that there's evil here. What is this that you have done? How could you? But what if that's not the tone that God had? We don't know. I'm not going to claim we do. But what if we're placing that tone on God because of how we see this passage of like the great brokenness of humanity? What if instead of exasperated and aggressive and angry, the questions are gentle and inviting? My child, where are you? I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. I want to love you. Why are you hiding from me? Why are we separated right now? I made you good and whole and beautiful. Who told you that you had to have clothes? Instead of searching for admissions of guilt to make a verdict, God is reaching for connection. God is reaching out through the shame, even as, at, even as Adam and Eve are giving in to the lies. We are made for a relationship with God. And even in this moment of disobedience and fear, God is already immediately reaching out towards us. God sees our shame and our hiding and calls for us to be near once more. Where are you? I love you. Be near to me. Even in the first few chapters of the Bible, right, we're three chapters in, we are already encountering the arc of the good news of the gospel. God wants to be near us. God is reaching out for us in love and will do whatever it takes to bring us near again. There is grace and love and gentleness abounding in God. God is seeking intimacy and relationship with us. In God's response, we see antidotes to the shame that we feel and that can bind us in hiding. And we need these antidotes, we really do, to be in full community with other people and with God. And even ourselves, we need handholds out of the pit of shame that we have that says that there's no room for grace or hope and that we're all alone and no one will ever love us or care for us. For true flourishing to be fully known, we have to be out of this dark and we can't be driven by fear and shame. So with an antidote, we can wholeheartedly engage in life and relationships in a way that we can't otherwise. Now, I'm not exactly a fan of a three-point sermon, but I found three points, so here we are. We have three points of an antidote to kind of carry with you, to hold on to. Uh, maybe when one of these doesn't really feel like it's working for you. So the first one I've already talked about a little bit, it's the gentle curiosity of God. This is seeking to listen, to hear, to understand. God already knew what happened down in that garden, and God still chose to ask those questions. God could have just, you know, gave the punishment from far away. God knows all, sees all, but instead God chose to have a moment of intimacy with his children. God chose to ask questions and to lean in. We can offer this gentle curiosity to others when they're in the midst of shame, and that can help draw them out to build connection, to say no to loneliness, to say no, you are not the only one. But it can also be helpful to do so for ourselves, to say, you know, I feel shame right now, and to be curious about it and to say, why do I feel this way? How, how come I feel this way? What can I do about it? And seek connection even in our own selves. The second aspect I see is courage. 
It takes really, really deep courage to be vulnerable and to confront shame and move in the face of fear. It's really scary to seek connection with honesty. You know, sometimes we do wrong things, just like in Genesis. They did something wrong. We commit harm. We hurt other people around us. And it's hard to be honest about that with other people. Adam and Eve did not show very much courage. I think we can all agree on that. They immediately started hiding and found excuses. And I don't know if courage and ownership of their wrongdoing would have changed literally anything. I honestly don't know if it would. But I do think it would change our understanding of this story and how we react to fear and shame. It would give us an example, a direction to go in instead of, you know, an anti-example. Luckily, the Bible is full of other stories that show us the way forward of how to act when we're afraid and full of shame. One that comes to mind is Naomi in the story of, in the book of Ruth. She has lost everything. She has lost her husband, her sons, one of her daughters-in-law, and she has to return to her home country alone. All she has is Ruth. But showing deep courage and belief that I don't know if I would have, she claimed the promise that God would care for her completely and utterly. And that's the kind of courage not everyone shows, but it's really beautiful, and I think it can lead us in a direction of courage. And there are so many other examples that I don't have time to go over it, but it gives us different examples and different ways to think about it. But even as Adam and Eve were afraid and sank back into fear, we can use courage to move forward towards wholeness. The final piece of the antidote actually comes from earlier in the story that we didn't actually read. So I'm going to read for us now from Genesis 2. Actually, 1. I lied. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. Here, we see that everything is very good. We see that we are human beings made in the image of God, given inherent dignity because of that. And that is something to celebrate, you know? I don't think we often think about celebration and joy, but I think celebration and joy have a huge way of fending off shame. The celebration and reclaiming of God's goodness in us helps fend it. You know, there's uh, definitely something to be said in Genesis 3 for what it means to be human. But I think Genesis 1 speaks louder than that. God originally created us in God's image and very good. We lose sight of the grace that is extended to us sometimes, you know, when we're caught in shame. I think sometimes there's shame that we should not have at all. You know, there's things when we're kids that we feel shame for that we never should hold for being too tall or too short or for liking that book and movie too much or in the wrong way. 
for never learning something or making an honest mistake. We can feel shame for those. I'm sure thinking back in your life, you can hold moments where you felt shame for something that is not shameful. Even when we do do something wrong, shame is a way of twisting that wrong action into something that no one could or understand. We begin to believe that we are bad, not that we did something bad. We lose sight of the grace that God extends to us in Jesus, and we believe that our sin is more of a definition of us than our God. The way that Adam and Eve melted into the garden trying to hide from God is the way that we often melt into shame instead of going for the connection that God offers. So to combat those things, either shame that never should have been there in the first place or the shame that starts to define us more than our God does, we can celebrate God's image in us, the ways that God created us to be, the gifts and talents that are in us. And I know as Calvinists and Reformed people, that's kind of hard for us sometimes. It's been pretty trained out of us to delight in ourselves. But as God says, God delights in us. And maybe it's worth claiming the inherent dignity that we have as image bearers. I think a helpful thing for us might be to learn from our queer siblings. This month is Pride Month, which is really great. They take the time to celebrate who they are, to counteract the fear and the shame that people have heaped upon them in the forms of laws and, I don't know, words, cutting words. Their celebration, their pride, their honesty about who they are counteracts the shame that has no place in being in them. It says, no, we are worthy of love and dignity no matter who we are. And that is definitely worth celebrating. When I first realized I was bi, I immediately shut off all thoughts about it in my head. It went unnamed in my journal, even though I like wrote about it in generalities. My friends didn't know, my family didn't know. I even tried to hide it like from God in my prayer life, you know, just kind of speaking it generally. I thought it was better left in the dark. I thought, you know, I can still marry a man. No one ever has to know about this. This can just be a secret for the rest of my life. I don't need to hold it. But it turns out that the shame that I felt in my body about it, even without saying it, the reactions that I was afraid of for my friends still ate away at me. It's like if you dam up offshoots of a river and force all the water through one section, that's how it felt in my heart and my mind. You know, there was this pressure of water surging through a very specific point because it couldn't flow out through all that I was as a person. And I don't know if you've ever seen a river dammed up like that, but the erosion that creates, you know, the, the change in the landscape is really quite awe-inspiring, but, you know, it's not what we want. It's not the natural flow of the river. I wasn't being honest with myself. I wasn't being honest with God. I don't have some story to prove that, like, locking that piece away in me, like, held me back from, like, true flourishing or anything. But there was this pressure and disconnect that I felt in my body. I felt disconnected from God. I felt disconnected with others because I wasn't sharing it with them. I felt disconnected from myself. I felt fractured. Like I couldn't claim all that I was. 
by letting fear and shame guide me away from letting all that I am be present, be a part of my being, I was turning away from flourishing and wholeness. I couldn't give all that I was to anything if I was fractured. I couldn't give it to God. I couldn't give it to things that I cared about. I couldn't give it to my friends. And so little by little, I felt the strain of that disconnect, and I was lonely. And I began to share with other people to let light in on the shame. Little by little, I moved from hiddenness and into intimacy with others, with everyone around me. I became more curious about myself and about how I worked and who I was. I shared with trusted friends about who I was and what I was learning about myself, and they celebrated me until I was able to celebrate myself. I knew, I know calling pride, pride is rubs some of us the wrong way because you know that's a sin, but when so many of us have been told over and over and over again that who we are at our core is something to be ashamed of, something to be ground out until it's no more, we have to proclaim joy and celebration over ourselves, to own that dignity that God has given us, to own the life and joy that can come with claiming ourselves. To claim that hope and original piece of goodness to claim our dignity is to combat the power of shame. So when we celebrate who someone is as God's beloved, we counter shame. When we are gently curious about others and ourselves, we are a community that is more fully known. When we have courage and take hard steps towards vulnerability, we loosen shame's hold on us. And our God does all of this with more power than we can imagine. In all of our hiddenness, before we can take any steps of courage or joy, God is reaching out towards us and calling us child. God moves and cares and asks, where are you? I want to be with you. I want to be near you. Come be with me. Don't be afraid. So that God can meet us in shame and bring us into light and grace everlasting. Pray with me nearer to us than our very breath. Thank you for seeking us out. Thank you for your endless love. Courage, curiosity, and a fuller communion with you. Amen.